This episode of the King's Hall Podcast is brought to you by Private Family Banking, Salton Strings, and by our supporters at Patreon.com. Human civilization and culture are walking through the rubble and ruins of the first Christendom, though there are newly erected buildings. These buildings are not the strongholds of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not institutions built to rule, educate, or worship in the name of the triune God. These are temples and institutions of a different kind. These temples house the old pagan gods. In this cultural city, one temple is richly adorned and filled with worshipers more than others. This temple houses the old demon gods of fertility and prosperity. Any pre-Christian civilization had their fertility gods. They practiced evil sacrifices and ritual rites to petition this demon god to give them children, prosper financially, or to make their land fertile for crops. It may seem odd to say that the fertility gods of old are worshipped today, but birth rates have plummeted since the 1950s, where the average worldwide birth rate was five births per woman, whereas in 2021, it was 2.3 births per woman. The balance between fertility and prosperity is challenging for the modern adherents of these fertility religions. On one hand, child sacrifice is higher than ever before in human history. The worshipers of Moloch would blush at the astounding number of children our culture offers for their prosperity. Women want to have their prosperity and fertility when they choose, while still participating in modern temple prostitution. These all have modern wrappings, but are of the same sacraments of the old gods. In rebellion against the triune god, women attempt to circumvent his creation and become little gods. Their desire for prosperity runs into reality. They only have so many childbearing years. They sacrifice their children for their career, but want the option to have children later, with or without a husband. An increasing number of women opt to have their eggs removed and cryogenically frozen for later use. A 2022 New York Times article details this growing practice for career women. Emily Gersh woke up a few weeks after her 42nd birthday with what she called intense panic, the sudden sense that despite wavering in her 30s, she now knew she wanted to be a mother. Miss Gersh lived in New York City at the time and embarked on three separate rounds of egg freezing, one right after the other in the summer of 2020. She didn't expect to enjoy the process, she said, but as she sat in the waiting room between seemingly endless blood tests looking around at the rows of other women, masked and spaced out six feet apart, Ms. Gersh felt the sense of community, something she craved during the pandemic. I just savored every moment, she said. Months after her third retrieval, she used donor sperm to fertilize eggs, creating an embryo. And in 2021, at the age of 43, she gave birth to her son. They now live in Switzerland, where Ms. Gersh, a single mother by choice, works at a pharmaceutical company. I just appreciate it so much more to know this is something I deliberately chose. This is exactly the life I wanted, she said, and I created that. Since approving the procedure, it has gone mainstream. Facebook and Apple announced they would cover up to $20,000 in costs for their employees, prompting other companies vying to attract and retain top talent to follow suit. Egg freezing startups sprouted across the country, throwing egg freezing parties and offering quick, free fertility tests in parked vans. The procedure was touted by many as a potential equalizer in the workplace, promising to have as much of an effect on a woman's life as a contraceptive pill has had. 
Over the decades since the ASRM announcement approving egg freezing, the number of people who have frozen their eggs in the United States rose by more than 400% to over 13,000 in 2020, from just over 2,500 in 2012, according to data from the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology. Most are white, middle-class professionals, and a growing number, roughly 35%, compared to 25% in 2012, are women under the age of 35. Despite more women freezing their eggs in the last decade, fertility experts and endocrinologists don't have a clear success rate of live births from frozen eggs. They only have probabilities. And a majority of those women don't go back to use their frozen eggs. A small study from 2017 found that only 6% of those who froze their eggs between 1999 and 2014 used them to get pregnant. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, welcome, gentlemen, to another episode of the King's Hall podcast. I'm your host today, Eric Kahn, joined by two other phenomenal hosts, Brian Sauvey and Dan Burkholder. Gentlemen, I'm going to kick it to you and welcome you to the show. But first of all, after that cold open, I just want to say I appreciate and enjoy the way babies were made the old-fashioned way. I'm going on the record. It seems just so much more fun than <laughs> sitting in a waiting going room. to the waiting room. Like, the thing is, if I had to rank marital lovemaking against going to a hospital or a medical setting, it, it's it, – believe it or not. Interesting. I Interesting. would put the former lower. That's glorious. <laughs> that That's was glorious. also <laughs> confusing. Having made multiple children myself, yeah. I definitely approve of the old-fashioned method. Yeah, it's much. God, six feet was apart, smart. Uh, masked up, uh, and having a sense of community is one of the most depressing and sad things I've read. That is soul-crushingly depressing. Yes, gentlemen. Uh, speaking of soul-crushingly depressing, I did listen to the last. <laughs> I thought episode. you were going to say, "Welcome to the episode, yeah. Dan Burkle." <laughs> wow, Dan Burkle. Oh. <laughs> no, I was going to say I listened to the last episode. Uh, I was not on it. Yeah, that was sad. Um, I, I got to say, I think Brian is my new favorite secondary host, and the reason why is because Dan was ready to bash me in, when I wasn't here. Really, I don't remember any of it. Yeah, he said that, and he was like, "Hey, he's not here. Let's take shots." And Brian was like, "No, you know what? I respect Eric and." I, and for that, Brian? Well, you know what? It's really funny. <laughs> I want to welcome you first to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, because, Eric. Because he said, I'm sure you guys didn't do that to me. And I was thinking back, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure Eric just hammered it. I think no. you guys probably both made fun of me. It's one of your favorite activities, both of you, especially together. Okay, but. To make fun of me. Which, in the packing order, just means that I am the most superior, I think. What did Dan say yesterday on Twitter? He said that he needed a coffin the shape of a French Canadian with a funny mustache. Is that the tweet that you're talking <laughs> about that tweet. I didn't see? If I hear this song one more time, I'm going to need a stretcher that will fit one curly a mustache a French Canadian. First of all, I'm French, not French Canadian. Secondly, French Canadian. No matter what French I've said Canadian. in the past, I now choose to say that I'm French, not French Canadian. <laughs> you know what? I'm American. <laughs> I've been telling I'm so everybody. American. I'm Native American. Oh, geez. take that! Insert bald eagle sound, Ray. No, that was Eric. <laughs> I've actually been telling everybody that your family invented Canadian bacon. Yeah, I mean, I'd be proud of that. No, it's horrible. Canadian bacon? It's horrible. It's ham. It's ham. Have you ever had like a ham and cheese croissant, my guys? Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah, but it's oh, not Canadian okay. bacon. That's all right. Otherwise, that would back. be, they would say you get a bacon, egg, and cheese croissant. That and is then better. you'd get it and you'd say, this isn't bacon. This is that ham. That is better. That's true. Bacon, I think it's just, bacon is better than Canadian bacon. It's such a letdown. Everything American is better than everything Canadian. Well, that's true. I think we can agree. 
also better than anything Canadian, and no offense to our Canadian listeners, thanks for listening, uh, this episode of the King's Hall, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, as Dan talked about, we're going to be d- diving in in this episode really to fruitful fatherhood. Uh, in the last episode, we were talking about love and marriage. What comes first? Love and marriage. First comes love, then comes marriage. What comes next, Ryan? The baby in the baby carriage. The baby in the baby carriage. There's a lot of Christians today who actually don't know this. It's right there in the rhyme. Yes. And what, <laughs> what, if you think that I'm crazy, it's in the rhyme. Uh, but Tim Keller's book on marriage, I was talking to Rich Lusk yesterday on the Hard Men podcast about this. And he said, you know, there's one interesting omission and a pretty telling omission from Tim Keller's book on marriage, and, and that it's it, it never talks about children. You know, it's it's crazy. That's I'm like, there's no way. But I think about it, and you're right. He he doesn't mention it literally at all. Well, and you think about his church. If you're in New York, there's not a high rate of children. It's an expensive place to live. <laughs> so a little kid runs into him at church, and he's like, what is this? What is, what is, this, is this thing? Ugh, it's unsettling to me. What is this small creature? That's right. And we've had well-documented in the news that there's been a death of the West. Pat McKinnon's book, I think we're going to talk. Dan, just a little bit about that book today as well. But declining population is a real problem. And so there's actually kind of two parts to this episode. We're going to talk about the problems. Then we're going to talk about the solutions. They're actually, to me, they're, it's, it's kind of funny biblically because they're so plain as day for people who are willing to see it. We need to yeah. honor the command in Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply. Let's make big families great again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, I want to ask you one question. As, as you think about the state of Christianity today, do you think children are priority for most Christians? I think that we have been successfully colonized and discipled, if you're talking about evangelicalism as a whole, yes, with the idea that even saying that children are normative and that you should want children and lots of children and children are a blessing, that that is some kind of idolatry of the family. And that instead, we need to prioritize things like singleness. The and glory we, of singleness. The glory of singleness. And, uh, and, and the problem is that I see is that all what we're doing is we're wholesale in, in many cases adopting the sexual ethic of secularism, which is lots of sex with lots of people, but no babies, or if you have any, kill them. And over against the, I mean, and so much is this the Christian view. This is like, there is no historical question at all. The Christian view is covenant, marriage, man and a woman, lifelong covenant and have children and enjoy them and lots of children and raise them in the discipline of the Lord. And this is a blessing and this is a good thing. And that biblically not having children is a curse. Like people listening that, that have infertility, they know, it's they a know curse. it's a curse. They, 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 they weep over it. They, and we, we mourn with them and we pray for them. And, th- and we have this in our church regularly in the pastoral prayer. We're often bringing to the Lord, Hey, this, this couple would, lo- uh, would love the blessing of children. Would you please bless them with children? Open the womb. So absolutely, I think that the state of the the Christian culture has far uh, too much been impacted or inculturated by the death cult of secularism. Well, and it's ironic, Dan, because uh, we were talking about this before the show, but the 20th century in America, probably the most prosperous century in many centuries, I mean, maybe go back to the time of Solomon, but America, by far 20th century, most prosperous that they've you know, many nations had experienced up until that point, it was all based on a baby boom. Mm. The prosperity was tied directly to the number of children that were had by people coming out of World War II. Then that generation turns around and says, thank you for the prosperity. 
I'm going to be 100% completely selfish, and now we're going to do everything we can to stop having children. A lot of nations have actually figured that out. We'll talk about it more in just a minute. But children are a function of prosperity. They're not the curse. But today we treat them as the curse. Yeah, I know. A financial burden. Yeah, one thing that Brian likes to say quite often is that people are your greatest resource. People are your greatest resource. And so when you deny God's commandment to be fruitful and multiply, you're actually cutting your legs out from under you. Mm-hmm. And and I'll read this uh, lengthy section from Death of the West by Pat Buchanan in a moment, but uh, I think you're right. So in the 1950s, uh, I read in the cold open that the average number of births per woman worldwide was five, and it dropped to 2.3 in, I think it was 2021. It's anticipated to drop to... 2.1 by 2050, which is is less than replacement. Well, I was going to ask, I, I know you'll continue, but I want to interject here that what's interesting is having two children isn't multiplication, as you're saying, because it's, it's not even replacement level. So for people who don't understand that, they're like, well, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Why do you think that means a big family? Well, mul- just, even just the principle of multiplication. Two, yeah, two times what? <laughs> Not two times one equals two. <laughs> right. That's right. right. And so we're, we're going for more like three or four or five or six, and then we're multiplying. And then we're going to take over the world with our fertility. <laughs> that's what, that's well, what the libs are going to taking over the world <laughs> well, with their actually, fertility. But it's not right. the Christians. It's not the Christians. This is the interesting story in Exodus 1. Exodus 1 is an echo of Genesis 1. Because it says the people were fruitful and multiplied, and now they're a political problem for Pharaoh. Here comes Moses. Yeah. So even you think about all of our states, you're like, well, we're outnumbered. Okay. Well, they don't want to have children. They just want to steal yours. Liberals don't reproduce in the bedroom. They reproduce in the classroom. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have kids, keep them out of school, out of public schools. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that's pretty simple. And then it would change us. But Dan, right now we have a huge problem with the birth rate. Yeah, we have a huge problem. So- it's not just that uh, people aren't having kids. The, I mean, that is a problem. The, but the problem is downstream. We won't see it uh, for generations. Mm-hmm. I mean, we hear about this all the time come the election cycle where, where Social Security comes up as an issue. Like we have an aging workforce and yeah. we have more people on it than ever before. But Eric's right. Post-World War II with the baby boom, it's not a coincidence that – worldwide, you had economic flourishing, not just in the United States, but worldwide economic flourishing with the number of children that we had. And it proved to be the backbone of American culture that would, and society economically that we've been reaping now uh, for, for a while. Um, but unfortunately, the boomers, they're now entering that retirement age. And that's why there's a concern over Social Security. So uh, if you'd like, I can read this portion yeah, from- yeah, please. Death of the West uh, by Pat Buchanan. Buckle up. It's going to be lengthy. He's talking about birth rates uh, specifically in different countries, and this is about Italy. Prospects for the Italian race, which gave us Rome and all its glory, St. Peter's and the Sistine Chapel, Dante and Michelangelo, Columbus and Galileo are even more dire. Italy's birth rate has been below replacement levels for 25 years and is down to 1.2 children per woman. At this rate, Italy's 57 million people will fall to 41 million by 2050, writes population researcher Nicholas Eberstant of American Enterprise Institute. Barely 2% of the Italian population in 2050 would be under five years old, 
but more than 40% of it would be 65 or older. The birth rate in the most Catholic and romantic of nations, adds New Republic's Greg Easterbrook, means that Italy will be a theme park for the generations. A recent survey in the popular semi-feminist magazine Noi Donne found that 52% of Italian women between 16 and 24 planned to have no children. Career was their principal reason for not wanting any kids. University of Rome demographer Antonio Gioni said that the nation is already dependent upon immigrants to bear the load of its deeply indebted pension system. But now Italian culture is at risk. Gioni believes Italy will no longer be Italian. It will be the end of society as we know it. Gioni, which I've said three different ways, was now called a demographic terrorist 20 years ago when he first warned of Italy's impending population crisis. He is called that no longer, though. Dr. Gioni remains deeply pessimistic about his country. In an increasingly globalized labor market, Italy must compete with France and with the United States, with India. How can we, with such an aged society and so few young people? Cardinal Giacomo Buffini of Bologna has called on Rome to restrict immigration to Catholics to save the nation's identity, raising eyebrows with his remarks that Muslims have different foods, festivals, and family morals. But where does his eminence propose to find these Catholics? Certainly not in Spain, where in the days of Claudio General Francisco Franco, big families were sacred and received medals and gifts from the state. The Spanish birth rate is the lowest in all Europe, lower than that of Italy, the Czech Republic, or Romania, all of which have fallen to 1.2 children per woman. In Spain, the birth rate is down to 1.07 children per woman, and the population is projected to fall by 25% in 50 years as the number of Spaniards over 65 soars by 117%. In one generation, we have gone from a society in which families of eight or even 12 children were not unusual to one in which childless couples are common, where people think long and hard about having a second child, says Madrid sociologist Victor Perez-Diaz. By 2050, the median age in Italy will be 54, and in Spain, 55, 14 years above the median age of Japan, the oldest nation on Earth today. Prosperity has strangled us, says Dr. Perpalio Dante, a leading Catholic intellectual and professor of sociology at the University of Bologna. Comfort is now the only thing anybody believes in. The ethic of sacrifice for a family, one of the basic ideas of human societies, has become a historical notion. It is astonishing. In 1950, Spain had three times as many people as Morocco across the Strait of Gibraltar. In 2050, Morocco's population will be 50% larger. If 100 Spanish young people marry today, they can expect to have 58 children, 33 grandchildren, but only 19 great-grandchildren. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, Brian, uh, after listening to that, I, w- I want to ask a few questions. Uh, one thing that comes to mind, this has sort of been a, a heated debate recently uh, because I think more and more people are recognizing this. We can watch videos of people being shipped into our country from Mexico from a third world dunghole country, and they're coming into our country. There was a recent White Boy Summer video, and in the beginning, it opens with Joe Biden saying – White people are being replaced and you should celebrate this uh, and our culture with it and, you know, American culture, all those things. Do you think it's a problem for Christians to recognize, hey, there's a problem 
and we should think about this and do something about it. Because a lot of people would say, oh, you're a kinist, you're a racist, you're uh -huh. an ethnocentrist, simply for saying our population's dying and we should do something. No, that, that's not a problem. And what, what the globalists love to do is they love to weaponize distorted Christian values against Christians. Mm -hmm. So they weaponize um, like the, the greatest commandment to love thy neighbor into a globalist propaganda machine that says that we should be borderless, that nations should absorb third world immigrants at whatever rate the third world immigrants want to come to our nation. Basically open society, open morals. Yeah, that, that the idea that distinct cultures and nations are a positive good is actually racist or, you know, somehow wicked. All of these are not, those are not biblical values, but they weaponize the love of neighbor. You see David Platt do this. I mean, even recently I saw a video where David Platt was doing this, talking about immigration and mass immigration. And they weaponize the idea of like, well, don't you want to evangelize your neighbor? Look, the mission field is coming to you. Look, look, look how amazing this is. And the problem is that uh, it's it's actually not loving to your neighbor to totally destroy the economy, their livelihood, to totally destroy their culture. And and we said this before on, on the King's Hall, but I think one of the, the aspects that's often missed in this conversation is that the left is, is often um, waging an asymmetrical war against Christianity, and, and, and it's just a proxy war where whiteness is just a proxy for Christianity. Since Christianity basically built the West— Christendom built the West. It built the Christian values, Christian culture, built the prosperity of Europe and the Americas. Uh, and, and so when you talk about whiteness being the problem, a lot of the time what they're doing is they're actually, they hate Christianity and they hate the Christian God. And so they just, they sublimate that into an attack on whiteness. Mm. But I think this is a play that we need to be aware of, this weaponization of Christian values against Christians by the left to basically say, um, embrace globalism. What do they actually care about with Im mass immigration? Is that they're making Democrat voters? That's basically what it is at the end of the day. It's about wealth transfer, and easily power controlled transfer. voters. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact private family banking partner Chuck De Laderante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street and Avoid the Coming Banking Meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information. I don't think they actually can see clearly what's happening right now. So, uh, you know, colonialism is alive and well today. You know, you look at English colonialization of, of different nations around the world. Well, if you were to zoom out and just ha have uh, some sort of third, like intermediary view, you would look at the spread of Muslims and of people from Mexico and from South America and the way that they're spreading, they're actually colonializing the West. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening right now. Yeah. There's a counter colonialization happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. I, I, I want to ask you guys, uh, one of the, 
this is sort of one of the idols that has to be chopped down in our era. But I've had Christian people ask me this question. So I know it's made inroads into the church. But uh, like one guy asked me, he said, uh, you guys are always talking about like be fruitful and multiply, have children. Isn't that irresponsible when we know, quote unquote, we know, science now tells us that the world is overpopulated and we have a population crisis? Stupid. Yeah, we, we don't have a population crisis, number one. God is wise. The earth could sustain many times its current population easily. You can Especially see- with technology. That's right. And you see the problem in the baby boomer generation moving forward. So the, the, the economic prosperity of the baby boomer generation is largely driven by the fact that people are both resources and they require resources. So people are they're, – they're net positives in the end. A person, uh, especially a godly person, will create more resources than they can themselves consume. They're a net positive to society. But they also need houses. They need food. They need consumer products. And so the economy overall grows with a growing population because you, you, those people are buying things. They're employing their neighbors. The, businesses can exist and flourish when there are more people. So what happens is the baby boomer generation, their parents had a lot of children, and then they have fewer children. Each generation begins to have fewer children, mm. and the economy is going to shrink because there's not as many people to consume the goods. I'm not saying that people are parasites, but people do. It's a good thing. I mean, in part, though, it's because you have a, a, a different economic view than a lot of moderns today. Mm-hmm. So well, when you have a free market view, that is you – know, you have demand and you have resources. Yeah. You have people that make the resources yeah. for the demands. But when the state is in control of the, the economic flourishing of a people, yeah. it can only sustain so much. Well, the and- bureaucracy can't – can't swell and the state uh the state the corporations in bed with the state where you have mega globalist corporations that become a political arm they become an arm of the polit- of the government and then those corporations actually exist to transfer wealth from the people to the state and to the globalist corporation. And they use bureaucracy and government regulation to make yeah. sure that there's no competition. No competition, no lo- – it's, it's crapitalism is, is what I think Doug calls it, and it's a great word for it. It's, it's actually absolutely evil. All of it exists to steal wealth and power from people and localities and families and transfer it to a globalist, bureaucratic, obese system that exists to propagate itself and – restrict the freedom of, of real people. What's really interesting, Brian, as you were describing it, it seems like kind of inherent in the boomer worldview is a scarcity mindset that isn't biblical. Meaning like, well, if there's all this wealth out there, I need to protect mine by making sure other people don't have it. And so it seems like the population control arguments are, they, they thrive on that kind of thinking. Yeah. Whereas in scripture, it's like, I was just reading Deuteronomy 28, and, and the way that God blesses his people is like, I'm overflowing in blessing to you, overflow in blessing to others. There will be plenty of blessing. There's plenty of blessing, guys. There, yeah. It's, D- don't anybody worry about the amount of blessing that's possible. I, I'm capable of it. But then I was thinking about, okay, how does – Dan, you talked about the bureaucratic filth state. And uh, I was reading yesterday that the, the U.S. government, state plus federal, spends roughly $20,000 per student per year – on education, public education, this is K through 12, which amounts to $800 billion a year. Unbelievable. On a failing education system. 
most of that money, teachers will tell you this, most of that money goes to administrators. Did you say that was $20,000 per student? $20,000 per student per year. That includes K-12. state plus federal. K through 12. Unbelievable. Imagine what kind of education. I mean, <laughs> a, a, a soccer mom with $300 a year in curriculum can easily outpace the public school system. Oh, yeah. And we're, we're spending 20K per student per year. Yeah, we spend less than 25% of that per student at our school. And the kids in the public education system, we know because sometimes we run into them, they can't read. Yeah, they literally you know, are the high schoolers who can't read. They can't read. They can't. Uh, they they cannot think. They even just removed whole sections from some of the standardized testing um, because people almost nobody could do it anymore. And it was the type. I, I think it was ana- uh, reasoning by analogy or something like no. that. It was some kind of uh, reasoning that requires you to be able to track with multiple storylines, bring them together, cohere in your mind, and then come to some kind of logical conclusion. People couldn't the, – the point was no, not enough students were able to think in what we would consider the most basic form of logic that they had to just remove it from the test. This explains Twitter. Twenty, Yes, it does. <laughs> $20,000 per student produces illiteracy and total inability to reason. Because the point is that it's not that they're failing, by the way. It's that they're succeeding in what they're trying to do. Yes. Which is, well, again, wealth transfer, government growth, daddy state. They're succeeding in that. Absolutely. Well, and, and one thing I think worth pointing out is that feminism, as Dan said earlier in the show, is pushing towards birth control and the pill and, you know, free love, quote unquote, free sex for women. But Rich Lust pointed this out in our episode as well, that feminism, it's, it's like sister virtue is statism. Because mm-hmm. everything that fathers aren't doing, now the state you're going to say the state has to do. Yeah. And he was referencing a study where one feminist said the state needs to regulate that husbands do their fair share of chores around the house. <laughs> and it's like, how are you going to regulate that? That is idiocy. Yeah. The U.S. already has the world's highest rate of children living in single parent homes in the world. So that that's, again, feminism, globalist state. What are they what are they doing? They're succeeding in their goal, which is to destroy every form of competing local hierarchy and power and wealth and and, and subsume it into their power mm. and their wealth. Wealth transfer, power transfer, power consolidation. And one of the most efficient ways that you can do that is to uh, let women vote and then just let them vote for the kinds of things that they will vote for, which is weaponized empathy. It is subsidizing single motherhood and destroying the power of fathers. Again, Genesis 3, God said, her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over you. The, the curse of sin for the woman landed in a disordering of loves within the hierarchy of the family that then is uh, expressed in every level of society where Christian, where Christianity does not dominate or where Christian apostasy does dominate. You see this disordering of all hierarchies and all loves. I think, again, the single data point that you could point to in our country that led to a lot of this would be the rise of feminism, women's suffrage, and the the net political and cultural results of that. This just seems obvious to us, I think. Yeah, it is obvious. I know that – I mean, you you looked like, wow, that's – 
because we know that that's that to, to the normal person on Twitter or on that's insane. Like you are even to Christians. There's some like older Christian Baptist ladies on Twitter who were just recently opining about how some Christians are saying crazy things like women shouldn't serve in the police or military and that women's suffrage was a bad idea. And that's like a crazy idea. But again, if you just look at the data. Well, for for, for example, like Rich said in our podcast again, and I'm like, like plugging the heck out of my podcast. I don't mean to. <laughs> this episode of the King's Hall podcast is brought to you by the Hard Men podcast. <laughs> the Hard Men podcast. Uh, but one of the things he said is you can look at the data and he said the single most radical leftist voting block is single women in America. Not and, even close. And then you can look at th- – there's basically only one explanation in the 20th century for why America became such a leftist country as it did. And it coincides 100% with and, – and this is the only thing that will explain it all is women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, well, OK, these seem like radical takes, but I think what happens – it's the same thing with education. As we identify these idols and we go to the green groves in high places and we chop them down, people go, wait a minute. College for my women with a birth control pill is a human right. Yeah. Like we have to have this. And you're like, wait a minute. Let's think through this. What is actually good about this scenario? And then you say, well, it is problematic. One of the things, guys, that's problematic is birth control and vasectomies. In my experience with the broader Christian church, so you know, most of my life in the Christian church, these are very, 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 I'm thinking like the pill and vasectomies, very normalized within the church. Like if you say, I I would question whether a woman should be on the birth control pill and men shouldn't get vasectomies. This is one of those areas today where people are like, wait, what did you just say? Mm -hmm. You shout like that, they they put you in jail right away. No trial, no no nothing. Journalists, we have a special jail for journalists. So I, I want to start here, and Brian, just maybe start with you. As you're as a Christian, as a pastor, thinking about these issues, why are these things harmful? What how how would you start in the discussion? Somebody says to you, "Is this a good idea?" Well, we have to start from a fundamentally positive Christian theological view of things like what is humanity for, what is marriage for, how did God create our bodies to work and, and and this to be directed towards the ends of earthly and heavenly good. And when you just read the book of nature and the book of scripture, you come away with a very positive view that a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They will have children. God blesses and opens the womb. He, he created a period where a woman is generally fertile and it's going to be, you know, a period of a couple decades where depending on at what age she gets married and a whole lot of different variables, you're going to have a decent number of children. If you just, and I mean, if you just went the nat, like the most common view in church history, which would have been totally against that contraception of any, of any kind. This includes the reformers, by the way, a lot mm-hmm. of people have pushed back on me and said, no, that's just a Roman Catholic view. You can read Calvin. No, uh, it, no. yeah, they're just incorrect. So, so this would have been the completely normative view of sex and marriage and fertility Children are a, a positive good. They are image bearers of God. We should be delighted when they're born. Yes, a wayward son is not a blessing. That blessing can become a curse. A wayward daughter is not a blessing. If, if you fail to disciple them, then absolutely, yeah, it can become a curse. But generally, that's the positive foundation that Christians need to start with when they think about these questions. And just be unashamed about starting from that foundation. And then when you come to these questions of things like birth control and vasectomies, I think birth control was the first chemical birth control, hormonal birth control. That was the first one that Lexi and I reckoned with all the way back when we were 
I think 19 at the time. We we're about to be married. Uh, I was 20. She was 19 when we when we were married. And it was the first time that we'd ever, like I had just assumed, both of us pretty much, that hormonal birth control was normal. Lots of girls her age were even like, hey, get on birth control for acne. Get on hormonal birth control. It solves all kinds of it problems. It balances your hormones. It balances your hormones. No, it doesn't, number one. Well, and I remember uh, even when we were getting married, we were both virgins. So, you know, your wife will go in for her checkup. First thing they do is like, okay, we need to get you on the pill. Yeah. Like they don't even ask you. They, it's not even a question to them. It's like, well, you're going to so be on the pill. We started looking into this and all of a sudden, and I mean, the st- how, how successfully the world had discipled evangelicalism, it was like the only resource we could find to talk about why the birth control pill was bad was this spiral bound, like hand printed Kinko's. <laughs> I got the same one. And we, yeah, you read the same one. Yeah. Does, is the, does the birth control pill cause abortions or something is the name of it. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. And we read it. And that was the thing that first got us was all hormonal birth control is fundamentally abortifacent. Okay, we're not doing it. It was just through a technicality that it was classified differently. As a non-abort. They had to change yeah. the definition of pregnancy to be implantation rather than fertilization. But here's the thing. Of course, the fact that it can occasionally murder a child, that's bad. But that, we shouldn't have needed that. Permanently, chemically, and hormonally altering a woman's body for the profit of large pharmaceutical corporations in bed with the government who continually remarket new and highly dangerous, by the way, contraceptive forms that have literally killed women, What's well, interesting too, Brian, that you mentioned that because in the last 10 years, especially, um, I had been doing some research on this, like, is the pill bad for you uh, hormonally? Just to give an argument to other people who are asking. And what I found so fascinating is that the, the majority of people writing about how nasty and horrible the pill is are atheist feminists who really? have done the research and they're like, the oh, yeah. pill, I mean, it's screwing with your cycle. Yeah. Absolutely would not put that in my body. <laughs> my wife and I, like maybe a year and a half ago, we were we were trying to learn more and more about this as we talk about these things on Bright Hearth and that kind of thing. But it, it, it was saddening to me that the state of evangelical culture is so thin and so deracinated when it comes to the human body and God's absolute wisdom and glory in designing the human body. And we're our hubris and thinking we can just willy-nilly completely alter the physiology of the, and the, the hormonal balance of the human body and think we're improving things. The, the, the documentaries that we found to watch, all made by feminists. Yeah. And they get like 90% of the facts right, and then they sprinkle in a bunch of witchy, woo-woo, crazy feminist nonsense. <laughs> and then like all of a sudden, there was one time we were watching one of these documentaries, Lexi had been like, hey, we should watch this. And then uh, we, I learned a ton. And then all of a sudden they're like, and explore your bodies. And it's like teaching, you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, get behind me, Satan, closing the laptop. Like, this is pornographic. It was, so, beware, listeners. But I think we need to reclaim this as Christians, though. Christians should be producing the best work on female fertility, the the female cycle, and understanding the cycle as a vital sign of female physiology that God fearfully and wonderfully knit together. I mean, all of this is, is, and we're Christians, we, we see the glory of God in this stuff, and too often we're just like, oh yeah, kids are hard, they're expensive, we buy all the secularist lies, we poison our women, we make ourselves barren intentionally, mm-hmm. and then when we finally get around to it, a lot of times we find out we're infertile because of these things, and oh, having babies is not as easy as we thought after all this stuff. Or 
we have one or two children and we say, oh man, it's so hard. And then in the depths of a four or six or eight week old child, we send dad in to get a vasectomy and that's it. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, the number of kind of mainstream Christians that I've talked to, uh, who will have like, you know, they're on their like second kid and they're like, oh, it's really just so much to handle. We've decided to, you know, we're done. So there's kind of that attitude and just not really any general teaching in the church about these things. One of the things I think about, though, in college, uh, in philosophy, I believe, we read Humanae Vitae uh, by Pope John Paul VI. And, you know, in college, we're basically making fun of it. They're like, yeah, this idiot pope who is like, you know, birth control and the pill are really going to lead to like promiscuity and like a sexual revolution that's going to destroy America. Yeah, look how stupid this guy is. And now I look back reading Humanae Vitae and I'm like, "Um, yeah, no, he actually nailed that. For the most part. Yeah. And that was the late 60s when he wrote this. You compare that to the liberalization of even all of the many traditional streams of Christianity and the way they've been successfully discipled in this secular pharmaceutical globalism. And it's like, it's one of the most successful cultural takeovers in the history of mankind. The the birth rates, global birth rates just show how successful that they've been in, in these things. Yeah. And talking about how having these negative stereotypes attached to having children. Uh, Dan, I want to ask you, one of the ways that we have a negative stereotype, I'm going to use a personal anecdote and then ask you a question here about it. My wife and I were like 18, 19. uh, We're dating, wanted to get married, uh, willing to talk to pastors and parents and all those things. Um, Across the church, I was told, don't throw away your 20s by Christians. Yeah. Don't throw away your 20s. This is a huge mistake go to college. I had people who encouraged me to live with my girlfriend instead of getting married. Again, all Christians. Uh, But the overall consensus was you should delay marriage. I remember a a seminary professor's wife said, oh, I would never encourage a a young lady to get married in college. She needs to focus on her career and get that done first. And we we sort of like didn't listen to that advice. I was married at 20. Uh, My wife and I went through college together, started a family, all those things, it could be done. I was working. It was crazy, but would, would, wouldn't change it. If anything, I wish we would have got married younger. So thinking about this, why do you think in our culture there is such a huge push to delay marriage for young people? Here you have young people in their peak sexual years, and you're saying to them, don't get married. And then they're like, why is all this fornication and sexual sin happening? <laughs> Where is it coming from? <laughs> Where did this come from? So, so, so I want you to speak yeah, to this. So you were married when you were 20. I was 20. How, how old were you, Brian? I was you 20. Married? 20? Yep. Okay. I think I was 26 mm-hmm. when I got married. I'll, I'll, be the, I'll be the bad guy in this story. The one who actually delayed marriage. I think we, uh, my wife and I dated for three years and were, maybe we dated for two years and were engaged for a year. By the way, prolonged engagement, also a very bad idea. Mm. You, shouldn't, you shouldn't wait a year in general. I mean, there are circumstances, obviously, but, but uh, that's, that's not good. Because it becomes really easy to justify at that mm-hmm. point, like, well, we're good. we're promised to each other. I mean, let's just let's just go for it. So, uh, anyway, I, there we bought into a few lies, and we had a lot of social pressure, like you did. Except I gave into it instead of just saying, "Ah, eh, you know what? We're just going to get married anyway." Uh, there were a lot of expectations around that. One of the expectations was that. So my wife, she, her, and I were going through school when we were for most of our dating. And the expectation was she was going to be a career woman. I mean, this is 
what she was going to be. She was very high performer in college. And then when she got her career, the, the idea was that we would have enough financial stability that we, we could actually afford to be married together. And the idea was that, well, that means that you have enough money where uh, money won't be a tension in your marriage. Because if you look at the statistics, most of marital strife comes from finances, is what we were told. And so we were instructed that we should we should delay marriage so that we had enough financial foundation to where we wouldn't have problems. So the the whole idea was touted as this this will be make for a better marriage if you wait if you delay your marriage. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I, I mean my wife and I are great. Like we great marriage, but that was not the case. We had so much baggage we had to work through later after being married from dating for so long uh, that it really did cause a lot of problems. Uh, one of the one of the problems back to the topic of this episode was that we also delayed in having children. So if you start doing the math, we waited to have kids as well because of the finances. Was that the main and, motivation? Well, I mean, a lot of it was selfishness, if I'm just going to be honest. A lot of it was selfishness. Can, can I ask another question? Yeah, um, but finances I, were a part of that. So, like, you guys were in the church. Yeah. Was it that people just, like, didn't have teaching on this? I guess, what was the church's mm. influence in a lot of it? I believe I was told that you should want to have kids, but but it was by a couple of men I didn't really respect that much. The person, you know, the person that I heard that really, I mean, really got under my skin and really got me thinking about delaying and having kids was Mark Driscoll. Mm-hmm. Mark Driscoll had said he would not marry any couple that does, told him that they didn't want to have kids, if my recollection is correct, and I believe it is. And hearing him say that, I was like, that really grates me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. That really grates me the long, wrong way. And so because my my wife was a high-performing, not just university student, but also in the workplace, she she climbed the corporate ladder very quickly. Actually, it was for a little while, she would she would make more money than me, and then I would get a, a promotion or a new job, and I would make more money, and then she would get a raise, and, and she kept climbing very quickly. The, the money was very, very attractive. And so uh, to, to bring it full circle, eventually it was uh, Pastor Brian Sauvey, his influence, that my wife and I made the difficult decision to have her leave her job, and I had actually ended up taking a job here at, at the church, we had a, a substantial reduction in our income. And then we, and yeah. we had kids. It was, it was a big one. Like mm-hmm. I, we lived on our savings for a couple of years. It was so big, but this would have all been alleviated. It would have been so much better if when I had known I want to marry this woman. So within like 18 months of dating, if I had had counsel and been cooperative, because a lot of it is my responsibility. I'm not blaming anyone mm-hmm. else, but it would have been really helpful to have wise counsel to say, you should get married. Don't delay in having kids. Mm-hmm. This is the direction you should go. And here's why. Yeah. Man, that would have been, well, even, I would have so many more kids. Well, even the when I was 20, uh, we were in a small group and the pastor of the church, uh, I remember going to one small group and we, my wife and I were both like, even though we were married, a lot of people told us, like, take the first, like, three to five years to get to know each other. Get to know each other. And so, like, that's what we were going to do. And this was, like, within, like, a couple months of getting married. Uh, the pastor was like, I, I want to teach on what the Bible has to say about fertility. 
and he he didn't really make a like this is what you have to do. He was like, here's what the Bible says. What do you guys think? And uh, I was like, kind of upset, but I was like, <laughs> well, it feels like you're saying that we have to have kids. And he's like, well, I, what do you think the passages mean? <laughs> this was like one of those like, what do you call the Bible studies? Oh, uh, like a small group or a... Not like didactic or introvert. That's not the right like the word. inductive? Inductive. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like heavy teaching. But I remember going through that and the next months or so, I was like, I started pouring over scripture. So even just a pastor who was like, maybe you should look at the Bible. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys. We started doing that and I was like, I want to put a baby in my wife. Like that was yeah. the consensus. People, this is the thing. Uh, this this blows my mind how bad we are at natural theology in the church today. Right. Is where... Is the the second you say married couples should typically immediately begin having children if the Lord opens the womb, people people are like, "What's your Bible verse that says that?" And I'm like, "Hang on, okay, I, I could there if we re, if we do Start the work, with the principles. If we do the work, we can get there. But let's just look at the book of nature. Let's just look at the the book of nature. God wrote this whole book. It's like your body, her body. Okay, so what happens when a couple gets together and obeys all of the commands? Like Paul saying, come together frequently, unless you're not coming together for a time of prayer by mutual agreement, otherwise come together that you not be tempted. What is going to happen? Well, God designed it so that once a month, your wife has a fertility window where her field is fertile and you have this great seed and you bring it in and, oh my goodness, there's a baby, right? So you have to get in and do something actively to try and keep that all from happening, like holding it, holding it back. And, oh, we don't want to. So if you just read the book of nature, like God knew what he was doing. He, he, he made it all. So it kind of lines up pretty, pretty frequently. And then we, we have this kind of theology that we think we can conquer nature and be our own God. This is what gay sex is. This is what all of it is. You're like, <laughs> I just, I do whatever yeah. I want. We got, you know, two dowels that works too. I don't need a dowel and dowel and the, you know, I don't need the. Never mind. <laughs> I was going to make a wood joinery reference there. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like we just, it's we not think, a perfect dovetail, Brian, so, is what and, we're. And, and the, the, what I would say is that the picture that all comes together from scripture and nature, these two books that God has written, would be that man absolutely does take dominion over and order things wisely. Yeah. So my goal isn't to get my wife pregnant as quickly as possible every time. My goal is actually to, help her recover, to make sure that she has time, that she's taken care of physically. My goal is to wisely order my home, so I'm providing. That means I have to make more money as kids begin to come. And it puts a high degree of, this season's on fatherhood. There's a high degree of pressure and responsibility on a father for his wife and his children that he's providing well and, and saying, honey, you can trust me with this great, big, potent, powerful thing that is your fertility. Because you're scared. Come home, don't work, depend on me, have a lot of children. You, like, we have to see how scary that is for women. And instead, what the woman has done, generally outside of the church, but then discipling the church to follow her, Lady Folly, is to say, I don't need no man. I'm going to control all of this. I'm not going to trust. I'm not going to trust my husband or the Lord. I'm not even going to have one. Instead, I'm going to take dominion over this in disobedience to the Lord, like a Tower of Babel way, mm-hmm. instead of... Building towers isn't evil, guys. Like, you can build towers righteously. But then there's a Tower of Babel way of taking dominion. And that's what modern feminist-driven globalist fertility 
theology has done. Well, I just told the story of the Tower of Babel to my boys last mm-hmm. night around the dinner table and told them about the mortar that they used was bitumen with pitch. It's, it's waterproof. It's waterproof. <laughs> they built a waterproof tower. After the flood. That, do you think they're good men or evil men? And God like, floods the whole world. They're, and they're bad like, men. We've got an idea. <laughs> he, and God even says, I'm never going to flood the whole world like this again. They're like, number one, we don't trust you, first yeah. of all. So we're going to build a really tall thing we can get on top of that's waterproof. <laughs> it's kind of fun. That is and then God's funny. like, oh, where is it? I have to come down to I have find to come it. down and look yeah. at this thing. Oh, there it is. I almost missed it right there yeah. next to the mountain that I You speak Japanese. <laughs> no, you speak Japanese. Anyway. So it's interesting. Uh, one of the intersections of faithful Christianity with maybe these Towers of Babel is college. It, it is kind of the excuse, right? Like, go to college, sow your wild oats, focus on career first. I actually just want to ask, Brian, like, we did something different. I was married in college. College was largely a joke um, that was a very expensive joke. But in your case, I like, you you didn't go to college. I did, actually. You did yeah, for a did. while. Yeah. So no, I, he's got a Bible degree. I had a full tuition scholarship how, to how many any years? university in Utah. It was a four-year degree that I could have gotten for free. I did two years of it, got my associates, and then... I, I was like, I'm called a ministry. I don't want a degree in whatever these okay. University of Utah or Weber State. So then I got a two-year. I finished, got a bachelor's in biblical studies. Okay, perfect. So, yeah, my so, wife has a bachelor's degree as well. So that's great. Yeah, my wife does too. We both have bachelor's degrees. So I want to ask you though, like we both were married young. Mm-hmm. I, I think you sing about this in The Mighty Host. Um, a lot of people will say, yeah, but wasn't it hard being like 20 and you're not far along in your career, so you're not making a lot of money. I look back and I want to hear your story, but mm-hmm. I look back and those were some of the best years of my life. We mm-hmm. were dirt poor, uh, needed a lot of help from parents and people in the church who were just super gracious with us. Mm-hmm. We had one car for yeah. a number of years, um, but I would have rather done that than traveled, focused on my Instagram account, which by the way, didn't exist back didn't then. Exist. <laughs> praise um, God. Quite yet. <laughs> praise pray, praise God. I don't want to have to look back at those Eric Khan early beardless photos. Um, they're scary. They're terrifying. They're terrifying. I've seen one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's awful. Scrub them from the internet. Yes. Uh, hopefully they have been. So uh, talk about, for, for young people who are may, maybe like, they're at that eight, 17, 18, 19, they're thinking about, should I get married? Mm-hmm. Even for the guy, it can be scary. So like, why would you say as a value proposition, contra Jeff Younger and the black pill people who mm-hmm. are like, marriage, never get married, use a surrogate, disobey the Lord. Or just like, you know, go do entertainment, travel, college, whatever, have fun. As a value proposition, why would you still say being married young, if you can do it, and starting a family, why is that good? Yeah. Why is it better? I would say marrying a godly woman is amazing, and that you should never marry an ungodly woman. So yeah, sure, take some advice there. Don't marry an ungodly woman. Be in a community. Find where that fruit grows. Be there. Go be a worthy man. Win a worthy woman. Things can go wrong. It's a cursed world, but deal with it. Not trying to avoid the risk altogether is the most massive risk you could take. But what I would say is that um, for us, I knew this woman. I knew her family. We had been in proximity of each other for, you know, close to a decade at that point. Um, By the time we got married, not quite a decade, more like eight years. We had been, we knew we wanted to marry each other. Lexi said to her mom, when I was 13, I'm going to marry him. And her mom was like, oh, that's so funny. She wasn't like saying this all the time. And then she did. And I, and I was like, that's the woman I'm going to marry. When she was 15, I, I was like, that's the girl. I'm going to. And then from that point on, I, I worked to reverse engineer at the earliest possible moment that I can legally do this without <laughs> getting my parents to sign some papers. 
what do I need to have in place to wife this woman up? And that was like getting up at three in the morning, working a shift at a coffee shop before school, going to high school, working after school, working multiple jobs all the time. And then we get married, still doing that, having multiple jobs, plus full-time school, then having children. And the thing was, like we made less than 20, you know, probably 24 to $27,000 a year. That's where we were too. Until we had multiple children. Which is like 64,000 a day. It's the equivalent of, yeah, maybe 40. (laughs) 400,000 dollars But uh, it was like, we had our date nights, Friday night, we'd get a DiGiorno pizza, like five bucks. Dude, I would save up. Oh, we yeah. would do the same thing, and we would go to Redbox, and I'd be like, one ninety nine, little steep. We'd sit in our. <laughs> but I'm gonna do it. <laughs> we had our two, our two bedroom, like seven hundred square foot condo, and we had enough children that we needed those rooms. So I built a, a bunk bed in the living room that the couch sat under, and then our bed was on top of it in the living room, and we'd sit there on our. By the our way, bunk bed. Brian would host in that house, like thirty people. So yeah, to those people that have a hard time hosting, like house church space every week, like yeah. thirty Are people in that room. Oh yeah, with our bed over there made of two by sixes. That's okay? so great. And we were totally happy. We had such a good, like it was joyful. We we loved it. We had such a good life. Yeah, we always look back on those years with like incredible fondness. Like yeah. I remember coming back to an apartment that was, I think it was five hundred dollars a month. And it was like absolute ghetto trashville. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. bad. The neighbors yeah. would like threaten to assault you on your way in. And you're like, hi, Dave. And I was working <laughs> I'll kill you. 70 hours <laughs> okay, a Dave. week at Valvoline. So I'm like literally covered in head <laughs> to toe in oil. And I would walk up the drive and my oldest, who I think at the time was probably one or mm. younger. No, one, one between one and 18 months, somewhere in there. He would be standing on the porch, shaking the yeah. rails, saying, da, 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 da. and I was like, I felt like a king. You were like, I'm Absolute a king. king. Yeah, you're a king. And and the thing is, for, for the woman, she should be marrying for the trajectory of the man, not the where he is in the first day of their marriage. You marry a man. My wife married me because she knew this guy will take care of me. We're not, we're going to be poor. Like we didn't, we never felt poor. Looking back, I'm like we were poor. She knew I would take care of her. And I knew that this was going to be a faithful woman who was going to do me good all the days of my life. Even though we're going to, you know, we're sinners. We had, we had our things to work through, but it was like, we knew that and people operate from fear and they make all the bad decisions in the foundation where they're like not in a good church, not in a good community, getting towards that age. And then they're like, ah, well, who am I going to marry? And then they, and then they marry someone who's dumb and apostatizes and they ruin their whole life. And you're like, yeah, well, don't do that. But that doesn't mean don't do marriage. Like that doesn't just because some people take their their car and drive it into a bridge abutment at sixty miles an hour doesn't mean don't drive. Or because means people, maybe keep it between the ditches, my guy. Yeah, people are abusing something doesn't mean the thing is necessarily it, bad. Yeah, we we need to recover the right use of the thing, not not be so fearful of other people doing foolish things. Yeah. Red meat is a staple of a healthy, protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt & Strings Butchery. Salt & Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends, Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef, 
and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meats, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. I want to move into uh, along those lines on solutions and we'll sort of talk about what, what are the positive sides of this? Like, you know, we'll talk about some principles. One of the things that came up in our discussions about this topic was countries like Hungary, very based Hungary and uh, Viktor Orban. And they recently, uh, I believe, passed a law that if you have more than four or more children, you will never pay income tax again. Based. Can you – I mean the financials on that are pretty incredible. Dude. Yeah. Why yeah, do you good. think why do you think they did it? Well, it, because like Brian always says, people are your biggest resource. And so when you when you're thinking from a, a countrywide r- leadership and you see that uh like I read in in Pat Buchanan's book Death of the West, that you have the trajectory of of countries like Spain that have 1.07 mm. births per woman and the average age of your populace will be 55 years old, it means you don't have any workers. Mm-hmm. So you will lose economically to greater societies that actually have children every time. So, so when a family produces four five, six kids, they're not just producing like, oh man, the, the infrastructure that it's going to take, the public schools, the funding, the daycares, mm-hmm. all the so- social welfare programs. Like it's such a huge burden. No, the way they're thinking of is like that family has six kids. Those are six future workers. Those are six future uh, people, you know, hopefully Taxpayers. men that will defend the country, that will defend the borders. Yeah. You have future uh, economic resources in those men, future productive people and, and the women. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's how they're looking at these families. It's like they're doing the work to continue uh, this country's prosperity so that we don't become irrelevant or invaded. Yeah. Which yeah. is what's happening is invasions. I, I think of two things. Number one is this really is about a broader uh, category of should Christians in a Christian nation use the legal system to uh, replicate and produce more biblical justice? Yes. Next question. And, and the, the, <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. The, the The obvious answer is yes. So one of the ways uh, Doug Wilson has mentioned this, uh, I think it's in Father Hunger, but he says essentially you, you you get more of what you subsidize and less of what you tax. Right? If you tax something, people you're going to get less of it. Uh, so in our country. Starting a small business is, Dan and I know this, Brian, you know this, it is an absolute paperwork nightmare to get the taxes right, to file your LLC, to do all these things. I mean, like weeks of paperwork to do this thing. How hard is it to sign up for a welfare check? I don't know. I've never done it. How hard is it? Walk in the office, you sign up. The only thing we've ever signed up for is WIC, which we had when the kids were little, so we could get like free beans. That's how poor we were. So nice. But you think about this. Got those government beans. And peanut butter. I Government PB and J, man. Oh, dude, dude, it's like a dollar ninety nine. This is this is how like a whole segment of the population thinks. They're like, dude, got to get the government beans. Yeah, but, <laughs> but 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 I mean, think about this. If you want to, if you want more of something, large families, then you know, 
this is a form of subsidy or supporting it through the legal system. Make it economically advantageous. The other thing I would say in our country that would be great, I'm all for it. People need to be working on this who are lawyers, not myself. We'll definitely promote it from the show. The legal system needs to be changed regarding, number one, get rid of no-fault divorce. Yeah, it's stupid. This is an abomination from hell. Yeah. Equal weights and measures within the marriage institution legally that, you know, you can't, again, we've talked about this before, but a woman cheats on her husband. I've known cases like this. She commits adultery. Death penalty. She she gets the kids all the time and he pays alimony. Yeah. It should be death penalty. Uh, And then like if, if he is not treating her if he's beating her and assaulting her and assaulting the kids, then yeah, absolutely. Like, let's go ahead and do some stuff. To, I, I'm trying not to get us kicked off of all the platforms. You know, now that well, the you AI already said can, death penalty, yeah, but I mean that capital punishment. But I, I was going to say some things that probably would have gotten us kicked off. Of the, anyway, yeah, you have equal weights and measures, and this is the loser thinking of the Christian right. A lot of the time, is there they go, it's the all or nothing principle where they're like, unless we can wait a second. You're saying that women shouldn't, or like the family shouldn't have to pay income taxes ever again if they, well, I think no one should have to pay income taxes. Therefore, I won't support that. I'm like, you guys, you guys, you guys, let's do a little realpolitik here, right? Let, let, let's admit where we're at as a society and aim for some, some achievable goals. Yeah, let's be, I think Doug called it smash mouth incrementalism. Yeah, and it's like, and I didn't even, yeah, I'm sure there's a whole abortion thing too. But I, I mean, I'm actually just talking about just generally. Just generally. That's like, what I mean. Yeah. One of the reasons Christians are so bad is because we're so incredibly not cunning politically. So, so wait, your thing that's in reach is no income taxes for big families? No, I'm not even saying that's in reach. But you know what is in reach? What is in reach is in many cities. So many cities and areas, uh, voting districts, things like becoming a Republican delegate. We've talked about this with some other guys in our church. Becoming one of the guys who's really politically involved in our area said 10 delegates in our area would move the needle on the Republican Party locally. 10 delegates. And becoming a delegate is actually not that hard because most people are so politically uninvolved today that it's like they're trying to find people to do this. Yeah. City council seats in small areas. Like I'm thinking about these achievable small wins. Where maybe you don't necessarily build your entire city council campaign on making the entire city say Christ is Lord. That might not work. But what if you ran a city – what if a Christian man who was a businessman in the area ran a campaign that was just on general fiscal conservatism and like, hey, we're going to try to not let them tax the hell out of you for the rest of your life. And what do you think about that? Like I think you could get some city councilors elected. You could make some real local progress. But a lot of people will spend all their time obsessively talking online about federal politics and never do anything locally. Yeah, and I th- that's what I'm talking about. Absolutely, I think one of the other things that, that you can do, and most this is going to be in the the in reach for most people, right? Even politics for a young family, like you're not in a position where you can get involved in politics, even as like you're not going to be a city councilman at 20. You shouldn't be. But what you could do is um, you can start a family. You can make sure that you go to a, a base. Christian church, and you can make sure that you homeschool or private Christian school Mm -hmm. your kids, as would be the situation here. If you do that, you have kids, so you get married, you find a godly wife, you get married, you have kids, and you have Christian worship, great Christian worship with Christian education, you have already defeated, like, the, the foundational bulwarks of Satan in culture and the way that culture is shaped and worked upon. So it's like that's actually in reach for people. Uh, Kevin Sorbo, uh, Hercules, uh, the actor who played Hercules, super bass guy. I asked him the same question. 
how's one way that men and Christians can win right now? And he's like, stop sending them to public school. It's so obvious. Just stop doing it. It's just so obvious. And he even said, he's like, stop being lazy and using the public education system as a babysitting platform. Yeah, it's just like, the stuff that you need to do is take responsibility where you are. Stop fussing and take responsibility where you are. Do your duties. If you need to move, move. Like simple as, just do it. I mean, is your family worth it? Or or do you need to re- relocate locally? Do you need to find a better church? Do you, do you need to start the business and stop thinking about like that loser mentality of, the, well, what about daycare and all this other stuff? Like, I know it's hard, but just go start the business. Go do the next hard thing. And if you do those things consistently over time, then in your sphere of influence, you will have fruitfulness and that sphere will grow in its influence over time. It's not going to be five minutes. So I will say, uh, if you don't have that place, you are formally invited to move to Ogden, Utah. Yeah, we would love we to have We have a, uh, I mean, top tier uh, Christian school, classical Christian school, St. Brennan's. Uh, the church is great. The community is excellent. The thing that's unique about Ogden is, although you look at the real estate prices and you're like, this is insane. The cost of living here is really high. There's a reason for that. It's because it's economically advantageous to live here. The economic opportunity is massive yes. in this area. People get paid a lot it's, of money for their jobs. It's called the crossroads yeah. of the West. I mean, it is a it is a big deal economically to be here. So economically, uh, as far as worship and community and education, it's here and we would love to have you. Yeah, People are the greatest resource. Yeah. And so we want to have you. We want to have based Christians live here. And you should be in a place where there's enough people that the economy can support lots of people moving there and yeah. making and putting roots down here. And the thing is, like Lord willing and the creek don't rise, I guarantee you, give give this community and the Lord at work in this community to the, a generation. We're in the, the midst of that first generation work. And let's see if we can't chisel out a pretty strong foothold here in that generation. And then the next one, and then the next one. So- there have already been uh, a number of families that have moved here yeah. successfully and are integrated and they're doing great. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, sh- shoot us an email. We're trying to get um we're trying to get together a good system of welcome and like talking to all of you guys cuz I know a lot of you guys have emailed us about it or reached out h- helping some of our mature men in the church get involved in like talking to some of these folks, mm-hmm. welcoming them in, helping them understand what are the business opportunities. So I know we're, this isn't just a big sales pitch for moving to Ogden, this, this whole episode, but it really is like, this is a huge part of what we're talking about is again, as a father, as a husband, your responsibility is to see to the fruitfulness and flourishing of your home and your people. Are you in a place that can happen? Yeah. One of the advantages of living in a community like this one in Ogden is that you have that robust community so that you know that the church is going to be solid. It's, it's, it's explicitly conservative, uh, and will remain. So there are guardrails in place so that it doesn't slide to the left. You also have a private school, which is one of the great benefits of a private school over homeschooling mm-hmm. is that having more children uh, as a father, having more kids isn't a massive burden on your wife and you homeschooling. Yeah. It really does help. It's a huge help mm-hmm. to free you up to- Especially when you have our economic model for the school. Yeah. Yes. Which is a full scholarship for members of the church. Who tithe. Who tithe. Yep. Yeah, and so, and so uh, there are there are lots of benefits here, and so the, the I mean, circling back to the topic, the reason that it, I brought that up is because if you're looking around and you're like, man, my kids are in public school, or you know, we're homeschooling, and it's 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 
man, I, I don't know if it's going that well, and there's not a community to really support you, and your church is really not great, and there's not a lot of mm. options. I mean, consider relocation. Yeah. Well, and so here's one of the the, the pitfalls, and I, I want to close here, uh, but I think it's a it's a really good thing to talk about is sort of uh, an issue to be aware of, and that's the quiverful movement, sort of the Duggar model. I've seen a lot of families, Brian, get into this state where they're like, I'm going to have as many kids as I can, no matter what. It puts uh, a lot of strain on wives whose bodies cannot keep up with the pace. Sometimes husbands' jobs that cannot keep up with the pace. I've seen a lot of wreckage. I've seen a lot of people like apostatize and leave the faith because they were basically told you need to have as many children as you humanly, physically possibly can. And it breaks families. It breaks men and women. So I think one of the things that I would want to say is we are not quiverful. I'm not advocating that. I'm sympathetic to families who are. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we've talked about is Phil Kaiser's book, Conception Control. If people are interested in jumping into this issue, that's a pretty helpful diagnosis of this overall situation. Uh, Brian, I just want you to speak to that. Why are we not quiverful? Why is that not what we're saying? I, and I kind of referenced it earlier in that I don't even think it's necessarily the correct Again, I want to think from the foundations, the positive foundations of what is a marriage, what what are people, what are the positive commands, and one of the big um, through lines that you see in um, God's instruction to men in particular and to the man and woman together is to bring order and to rule well and to be the kind of man who is a good lord and husbandman. They're stewards. They're stewards of, of the things that God has given them. And when you're stewarding um, things like crop fields, you have crop rotation and you lay fallow for a time and God builds these in to the rhythm of Israel. They're not just natural. It's not just the natural order, period. It's the natural order with the dominion of man bringing to flower the creation. So a principle of Sabbath. An ordered there's an ordered rule that man is to bring. Yeah. And so where where we go off course is where we rule in our own name and in wickedness, we take wicked dominion through wicked practices and, and bring death. But that doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, for example, in marriage, that, it's just, that there is no ordering or no dominion taking whatsoever over fertility. There is such thing as planning and I think, uh, you know, taking care of your wife, where our attitude is, I'm trying to give my wife um, after having a child because we're pretty fertile. Like just the Lord's made us pretty fertile. We we have kids, praise God, pretty easily. Um, I know some people have them even easier where it's like it's easy for them to get pregnant three months after birth. And that some people have that, <laughs> right? And we're not quite quite there, but we have so far generally gotten pregnant and had children pretty easily. But our goal is... I want to give my wife a good period of physical recovery. I want to treat the period after birth, that fourth trimester, as people call it today. Um, also, you see in the biblical practices of uncleanness, this these built-in rhythms of rest and around a woman's fertility and childbearing cycle, um, th- that was a good thing. It was an expression of ruling and ordering there where she had rest. So I want to do all of that to make sure that my wife is physically able to go into pregnancy with strength insofar as it's up to me. And yet we always say, and, and this is a conversation where I, you know, where I'm coaching my wife when, when she's looking at it and it's daunting and it's like, we have six kids and, and she's 30, she's not quite 32. We could have kids for another 10 years. And, and there are times when she might look at that and feel anxiety. And those are the times when I have to proactively go in and say, honey, you can trust me 
I'm going to do you good. I'm going to take care of you. The Lord is good. Even if we have a baby outside of our planning, that baby is a gift and we're not allowed to fuss. We're going to praise the Lord for that baby. Okay. But that doesn't mean we're not doing different things to try and um, manage or plan our crops, (laughs) if that makes sense. We have very hard lines about things that we will not do to avoid that. We will not, obviously, abstinence is out of the question (laughs) for multiple reasons, biblical ones for sure. You know, that's uh, 100%. That's why. Uh, Not because I like my wife and I'm into her, but you know. You know what I'm saying? Whoa, this is not Brightheart. <laughs> this Brian. isn't Brightheart. Grief, I'm sexual sorry, tension in this. <laughs> guys. I want to clarify. Something you said yeah. in the last episode seems like it would apply here, mm-hmm. which is the difference between principles and methods. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've noticed with a lot of young people is they'll like read about something like natural birth or – Yeah, home uh, birth. Or... It, it's usually women, and they get super fixated on an issue. It becomes like a black and white. I'm going to anathematize people over this. Yeah, you can only homeschool this exact way. You can only like, do fertility this exact way. How, I, is this a principal method thing? Yes. How, how do you guard against that? Particularly – and I want to ask this. We're talking about fathers. Yeah. It seems like it is the husband's duty to say to a wife who maybe gets in that state, babe – Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you need to step back. He has to be a leader in his home. And in fact, we talk about how finances are one of the number one causes of conflict in marriage. And I'm sure that there's data to show that that's a big issue. But underneath that is is masculine lordliness. Mm -hmm. A man who is providing and leading his wife well, she can sin and wreck everything. Like I'm not saying it's all his fault, but he he should be proactively in these conversations. Yeah. Saying, honey, you can trust me financially. I'm going to be able to provide for the birth and for these children, and I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to do this thing, and you can trust me. You can hitch your wagon to mine, and we're going to get to green pastures. She needs to be able to trust you there. And, and even that saying, and you know what? The Lord could give us lean times. The Lord could give us job loss. I could get hurt, of course, but we trust the Lord. And in, in when we have and when we have not, we trust the Lord. So he needs to lead. He needs to go in and, and and her heart needs to be able to trust in him in these things. And in that sense, I do see room for some kind of management or dominion taking in the fertility process. And what's funny is, this is really funny to me because a lot of like the Roman Catholic world, you know, absolutely against everything in terms of any kind of, like they talk about using the rhythm method, but even natural family planning in some of these circles, they would say even natural family planning is sinful. I've seen a lot of them change on this position, yeah. by the way, mm-hmm. simply because I think a lot of Catholics recognize, particularly in like poor areas, mm-hmm. that there, again, there is a, another ditch. So like, I think Quiverful was a response to the 60s and the pill. Yeah. But then it, it becomes very legalistic in the other direction. Yeah. And the thing is, it's funny, like the Roman Catholic Church, I think actually sinfully managed fertility in these ways by cutting off so many days of the year where a couple was not allowed to lawfully have intercourse that they actually ended up managing fertility through church calendar. So you couldn't have sex on the Lord's Day. You couldn't have sex on these feast days. And it ended up being pretty onerous. Did like, they have any days that they commanded you to have sex? I wouldn't be surprised, but I can't. I, I, I don't know. They did? No, okay. I, don't, I, I, don't, don't I don't know that they did. We don't know. Wouldn't be surprised. That would be a great day. So you do see that even some of these traditions had ways that they were maybe even not as a, a prime concern, but by default, they were managing fertility so that there were only like, a, in terms of days of a month where you could lawfully have intercourse with your wife, it would be stripped down to 
some months, less than 50% of the month that you could lawfully actually go to the marriage bed. So, well, and that's what yeah, I think yeah, even I think, the, the, the trad cats today that I've talked to about this, they're typically like the only thing that you can do to, is abstinence. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of them will, they'll say like, Hey, you don't have to have kids, but you do have to abstain in that case. During the fertile window. And, and Roman Catholic church tends to also, I think the early church fathers, and then also it still exists today, had a strain of asceticism that was contra scriptural. And also a low view of sex in general. Yes. So you read Augustine on this, or you read the church fathers on this issue, and you'll find a lot of sexual asceticism that is actually contra scriptural, where they would consider Many times you'll find church fathers considering marital sex sinful yeah. in many cases. Unclean at least. Unclean or it's non-optimal. There was a huge debate in the early church about whether or not Adam and Eve would have had sex in the garden at all without the fall. And I'm like, I think, first of all, I think it's a dumb question. It shows us like one of the reasons I'm Protestant is because I don't believe that the church fathers are infallible infallible, or that church tradition is infallible. It all must be subject to the test of the scriptures. This is an area where I think the, the, the Protestant theology of sex and marriage and family, as it developed particularly and threw off some of these unbiblical ascetical strains, recovered a scriptural view of sex and fertility and marriage. But what can happen with any recovery, like you said about the quiverful, is that you can actually swerve all the way to the other ditch. And so we don't want to swerve into any ditch. We want to believe the scriptures, and we don't want to invent new sins that God doesn't say are sins, and we also don't want to sin in the real sins. So so here I, I do see, I think this is an area where, you know, in our church, I think we even have some folks that are much more on the quiverful side of things. And this isn't an area where we're like, oh, we're going to put someone under church discipline for having a different uh, conscience in regard to natural. This sits squarely in the domain of the family government, provided nobody is sinning against somebody else. Yeah, and I think what we would generally ask of like parishioners would be things like, hey, if you let's say you are quiverful, you cannot go to other church members and tell them they're sinning. Yeah, and, and basically say, hey, if you have your if you're charting cycle and doing natural family planning and that kind of thing. You're in you're rank unbelief. Yeah, or, you know, you're not trusting the Lord because we just simply don't believe that that's true. That'd be a binding of conscience. Home birth versus hospital birth, medicated, unmedicated. These are all issues where people can have different conscience and discuss it, but not in, uh, enforce their conscience on another because we don't believe that we believe these are disputable matters. What's not disputable? Things like IVF, um, hormonal abortifacent birth control. Uh, abortion, obviously, those are not dis- marital abstinence. These are issues that are not debatable. Full sterilization, I think maybe you mentioned that. A full sterilization, yeah. Like I think that there, there, there's some issues where it's like, um, talk to your pastor, tell us what's going on because health and medical things. There's multiple reasons why, you know, for example, a woman might end up being sterile as a result of another medical thing that's corrected surgically. I mean, there's all sorts of talk to a wise well, counselor. Yeah. So it's like you have like ovarian yeah. cancer or something and they have to, you know, it's like, okay. We're not trying to like write a manual on no. every possible thing, but the principles here In are we value We're not going to intentionally go and sterilize somebody because we believe that that would be contra the natural and the scriptural pattern for dominion taking. I also think it's worth pointing out, and then I want to get Dan's take. Um, what's really interesting is I found in, in Christian camps, the viewpoints that are closest to each other often have the most infighting. Oh, yeah. So I think where our, po- our position and Quiverful are like right next to each other. So a lot of times people will be like, 
they think they're insulting me by calling like what we're espousing the Duggars. And I'm like, well, I have a lot more in common with the Duggars than a pagan witch with pink hair who has a hysterectomy at 20. Um, and, and so just keeping that as in mind as Christians, like the people you might be tempted to fight the most with over this issue are probably closest to you. It's because you share all the similar principles and then come to differing applications. Yeah. And so you're like, you're winnable. The thing is, we see those people as winnable to our position and we're like, it's, it ends up being stupid though, where we schism off into like 15 different right. groups instead of being like, we can have different conscience on these issues on the application of the principles and let's team up and be like, but, but we can all agree that like, uh, IVF and a lot of these issues that are mainstream in the church, like let's knock those idols down guys. Yeah, for sure. Dan thoughts as we are kind of closing with making great or making big families great again. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll, I'll just go into a little bit of detail with IVF because that we just threw that out there as something that, Oh, we all agree that this is wrong. Uh, the why is actually... Well, that's where we started, actually, with the episode. Right? Well, yeah, we did. It was assumed that they're using IVF, obviously, to harvest eggs, and then that's how they yeah. are impregnated. Yeah. Uh, actually, in that article, it talks about one lady. She went through multiple rounds of this egg harvesting and had 30 eggs. None of them were viable. Anyway, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, so IVF, why why do we think that that is not something that Christians are should participate in? First of all, I can empathize or sympathize with those that cannot have kids that the Lord does not open their womb. Yeah. I am sorry. Like that is, it sucks. It is very, very hard, very sad. And I've, I've walked through this with other families. We, we haven't uh, struggled with this ourselves. So, um, but I've, I've seen the pain and devastation that it can cause. And I could see why one would want to do IVF. You want to have your own kids, right? And so it seems like a simple procedure, harvest some eggs, uh, harvest some sperm, mix it in a test tube and just, you know, put it in, in the lady. And that's, that's fine. Right. Well, the, there's a few problems with that. First, they're fertilizing eggs outside of the, the woman's womb. And so you are making babies in a lab. And I, I think what, what this really is, is you actually, you're, uh, subverting God and his created order and his desires for how life is created. You are making yourself God in a sense. This facility is now housing children. They're fertilized babies. Even if they're frozen, they are your children. You are trusting that there's not going to be a power outage or a fire or from some catastrophic event where all of your children are now dead. Okay. That's the first thing. Uh, so you, you go to the fertilization clinic, they fertilize the eggs. You now have babies, you drive away, you guys die in a car accident. Like you've just functionally abandoned a whole bunch of children. The other thing is that uh, you should not trust those people. This is the same industry that thinks it's that uh, an abortion is birth control. It, so, tr- so why would you trust <laughs> these people Let me ask to, you, to yeah. watch your kids? Let me ask you this question. So you have all these they, – they fertilize a lot of eggs. And then say you have three kids out of the batch, which is a horrible way to even talk about it or think about it. But that's what they're doing. What happens to the rest of them? Well, yeah, so that's what I was getting to. So you have to trust these people that when they say, oh, we're, you know, we only want three kids, please only take three eggs and fertilize those. You have to trust that they're actually only fertilizing three. They've had instances where this has clearly not yeah, been the case. Clearly oh, yeah. not the case. And so they might do as many as 12 or, or more. And they tell you that we've got three. And then you have a bunch of children that are your babies, your children that you've now functionally abandoned at the clinic. And yeah. 
Who knows what happens to them? They destroy them. They go into the freezer and then adopted they're out. adopted out. To a Mormon family. So, uh, or you fertilize knowingly. Uh, yeah, we'll 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 do uh, you know six, and we have two kids. While the other the others will just put up for adoption, and you yeah. just abandon Snowflake your children. Adoption. And so there's a there are so many it's issues horrible. around IVF. One of the analogies, like a picture that comes to mind for it when you're thinking about it, is that would you be comfortable if you had like let's say six babies? in a big, this is going to sound weird, in a big slingshot. And you were going to shoot these babies at a fan that's circulating. And you know that like 30% of them are going to get through. (laughs) And you think like there's a good chance that maybe 30% of them are going to get through and we'll catch them on the other side and take our baby home. But the other 65% are going to be cut up into pieces by the fan and killed. You would never do that. No. Because you're you're looking at a grown baby, you would never do that. I'm sorry, guys. Embryos. Uh, preborn children are just another stage of human development. Toddler, teenager, embryo. It's just stages of human development. We should not be comfortable as Christians taking these technologies into our own hands in ways that is dehumanizing and murderous. You know, it's one of the questions that we ask in our member interview if they've uh, ever done IVF, because one of the things that we want to know is, have you functionally abandoned any kids? Have you abandoned any kids? And what do we need to do to help you to repent? Do we need to have those babies for you? Yeah. Do, e- are you are you going to have those children? We you need to right your wrong. Yeah. Even if it's just there's nothing I can do at this point, but I do need to confess this sin as sin and ask for the Lord's forgiveness and be reconciled to the Lord. Like all the way up to yeah, let's let's you have those children or someone else in the church who's willing to, to s- adopt. adopt or yeah. or to have the child. Yeah. Well, I think these. Uh, conversations are so important because I know there's a lot of young people, especially in the church, um, who want to learn the lesson, right? They're, they're actually hungry for information here. Yeah. But there's also a lot of people, and I would put myself in this camp, we've all, to some extent, we have regrets, right? Things that yeah, we weren't right. taught or the things that we were taught in the church that yeah. were bad. And so I think as as fathers in the church, you have a responsibility to say to the generation coming up, Hey, I don't actually want you to repeat all my mistakes. Yeah, no, and this IVF thing is going to be a growing concern because of fertility rates. It's not just that people are having fewer kids because they want to have fewer kids. They actually can't get pregnant. You know, sperm counts have been cut in half. Testosterone is dropping. Fertility in women is dropping because of chemical birth control, hormonal imbalances, many environmental aspects and influences. Mm -hmm. And so even people that want to have kids can't have kids. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think... A lot of the people that bought into this lie, I've actually known a lot of people in the LGBT community personally who are like, you know, you become a lesbian, you spend all this time in in that world thinking. A lot of these women have said, yeah, I was just thinking like later on when I'm really affluent, you know, I'll I'll do the freeze eggs implant thing. And then they're like, it's like, you know, IVF is like 10 to 14 grand a pop. Mm -hmm. And they realize they can't afford it. Well, this whole thing was a lie. So I – when you get to that stage in your life where you're like, I, I can't reverse where we are now. I can't reverse the decisions we've made. People do not understand the deep, deep regret that you will have. And so I think that's part of the older generation to say like, hey, we want to help you make the right decision from the beginning. Yeah, it's not because we hate you. It's because we, we love you. We love you and we yeah. don't want you to feel that guilt and shame Yeah, that many older generations have. Uh, Brian, I want you to wrap this uh, episode in a beautiful little bow, as you're so want to do all the time, W-O-N-T, want, and uh, just kind of make the case for fathers being fertile, wind us down, close it up, 
and inspire us with no end. Yeah, uh, and they're both now. They turn and look at me <laughs> uh, with eager expectation. Uh, I can't look at you guys while I'm doing this. Wow, this is especially talking about fertility. Mm. Go and sow your look seed, men. Go deep and do it into my eyes. <laughs> well, can I just say too? Yeah, go um, ahead. I'm going to interrupt you as I ask you a question. <laughs> That's great. I haven't even started. But yeah, I'm, I'm give, actually giving you time here. I'm buying you time. I love it. But one of the things we seriously do want to do, if you are interested in these issues, especially on fertility, um, if you want some sexual tension, electric energy, uh, whatever it was called, yeah. uh-huh. uh, go to Brightheart. Seriously, it, gr- great episodes on fertility between yeah. you and your wife. Um, these are tough questions that many people in the church are not willing to have. Uh, but Brian, you guys have done a lot of heavy lifting and work on that, so I would definitely commend that to our listeners to go to go more in depth. Yeah, thanks, Eric, on the yeah. subject matter. Yeah, yeah, we have talked about it, and um, and also a lot of talk for the ladies who are often the ones who are faced with a lot of anxiety over this issue. The husbands are like, "You can do it, babe. Let's do it." She's like, "Well, pregnancy's hard. The curse landed right in her lap in childbearing." So men do need to be they need to lead well and love well and call their wife to to feminine courage. And also provide for her the masculine safety that she needs to do well. So I, I would I would tie a knot on it by saying fundamentally that what we're saying in this episode is that Christian men, you must reject the culture of death that is being peddled to you, that the church is being discipled into perniciously by the enemy and by sinful men. And you must reject it. It's going to be hard. You're going to fight against the current. And one of the key areas where this must happen is in marriage and in the marriage bed. Men must encourage their families and and insofar as the Lord provides, lead their families into fruitfulness for their joy and for the glory of God and for the world. Go have babies. Uh, Disciple them, raise them well, provide for your wife well, but don't don't be cowardly. Don't shrink back from this out of selfish desire for comfort. Give yourself away. Your strength was made to be poured out for the good of your people and for the Lord. So give your strength away. Go and have children, take uh, leadership in your home, particularly in areas where, particularly in areas where your wife maybe has been discipled into worldly thinking, begin the conversations, be gentle, be patient, don't bludgeon her down or try to convince her all in five, in one five minute conversation, but do take the lead in these conversations and make sure that you are seeing to your generations for the glory of God. And so, you know, we pray that the Lord would bless you in this, that he would uh, make uh, you fruitful in every way, both in having children and seeing uh, your children's children walking in faith in the Lord and, and be very blessed in doing so. So, Festinolente, gentlemen, Festinolente, make haste slowly and may the Lord bless you. This has been a, another episode of the King's Hall. We hope it blessed you and helped your family. Uh, if you love the King's Hall, you want to support our work, we have a Patreon channel where we put out exclusive content just for our patrons and supporters, and it helps us continue to grow the show, uh, put more work into it, efforts, and uh, we would love to have you guys jump on as supporters there. But until next time, the Lord bless you, and we'll see you next episode of the King's Hall Podcast. <laughs>